thank you for leading us in worship. Good morning, everybody. Um, while we were down there, I, it was impressed upon me. You know, every morning when we come together and gather, it's important to engage in, in the songs. Every morning, it, it is. And sometimes there's just overlap between the songs and what we're, we're going to talk about. Sometimes the songs are more of a standalone um, experience that God wants you to have. And then there's today, every word of every one of those three songs we just sang, it, there's a consistent message with what God put on my heart. And we didn't compare notes other than really broadly. So I, I just want to let you know that when you engage in the songs, um, there's always going to be value. And then there's sometimes like today where now you've got a spiritual edge because you just asked God to do exactly what it is that you know we're going to be looking at when we open up the scriptures. So I do want to encourage you during those times. Um, if you're not a, uh, a regular, I'd encourage you just to reflect on the words um, and if you are uh, uh, a regular and, and you do these types of things, you sing this way, then, then we encourage you to, to always engage. So, sorry, that, that's no extra charge for that. Let's get into, uh, or no charge for this either, but let's get into today's message. Um, I do want to stop, though, and, and say welcome back to those of you who haven't seen for a while. Welcome to, to those who are new. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor at the church here. Um, I want to I wanna, uh, build off of what, what Jennifer said earlier and what Jill said you know, recently here. Welcome. We hope you feel welcome. We always hope you do. Um, we hope you feel right at home here at our church. We, we've got a gift for you in the back. We've got cookies every Sunday. Um, we hope you stick around long enough to, to get to know us a little bit. We'd love to get to know you as well. You're, you're welcome here. If you ever have questions about our church or want to talk, let us know. We'd love to do that. So hope everyone feels welcome today. Well, as a pastor, um, one of the parts of my job is, is the helping piece. You know, that's, that's part of what we do. We're in the helping business. And in that way, we're not all unlike a, a doctor. And... I was thinking about that today as we we're going to start this series that could rub you <laughs> as much as any that, that, that we're ever going to do. And, and I think about how a doctor sometimes has to say things that, that people don't want to hear, but the doctor needs to say them anyway. Let's just do a quick example. If you, let's say um, there was a guy who had a, had a cough, and the cough was really severe. And so the, 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 the guy, he can't sleep at night. He, he, he can't even talk for long periods of time without the cough happening, so he goes to the doctor. And let's say the doctor runs the tests and the results come back and the doctor sees this is lung cancer. How many of you would say that even though that news would be hard to share, if you were that doctor, you have an obligation to share that news? All right. Well, well, let's say the doctor didn't do that. Let's say the doctor's like, oh, that's too hard to say. You know, let's, let's give him some cough syrup, really strong cough syrup, and it'll make him feel better for a while. You know? Well, if you do that, then the person can go away. The symptoms might diminish for a while, but you're not getting at the heart. You're not getting at what's really going to ha- give hope, potentially, to that person. Well, I feel like we're in a situation like that with this, this series. I feel this is one that we've got to do, even though it's going to be really hard. You know, in my position, I encounter people every day. People who are struggling, and they're hurting, and they're stressing, and they're spending, and they're avoiding, and they're searching. And then they share, and they come, and they say, what should I do? And if they're honest... If they're honest, what they want me to do is to give them some spiritual cough syrup. You know, take one of these and call me in the morning. You know, or don't even do the call me in the morning part. Just let me take one of these. You know, what prayer? What's the magic prayer? That if I pray this prayer, then it unlocks everything. Or, or what is the book? What is the one book? If I read this book, I can check it off my list and I'm good. Or, or maybe they want me to say, well, just go to church more or, or simply confess um, your sin or try harder or talk to a counselor or find an ability accountability partner, end the relationship, cut up the credit card, put a filter in a computer, you know, whatever. They, they, they want the, 
what can I do, simple answer. And there, there is an underlying issue that affects all these things. There's an underlying issue that affects all of them, and that's what we're going to dig into the next, uh, counting this week, the next five weeks. This underlying issue. Um, one of the places I got language for this issue happened as I was doing a reread of the Old Testament, and I kept coming across two words over and over and over again. Here you'll see the two words very quickly. Here's just a couple of examples from two passages um, from a section of the Bible called, that we call now today First and Second Kings. Here's one from First Kings chapter 22. It says this: Yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Here's another example, 2 Kings 14.4. But the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Now, I, I kept seeing these two words over and over again. I'm like, is it just me or do they show up in the Bible a lot? They show up in the Bible a lot. I did a quick uh, word search on one of my, my tools and, and I came back with 60, more than 60 different references from 16 different books of the Old Testament. More than 60 times in more than 60 of the Old Testament books. Here's two more references where this, this phrase, high places, comes up. Here's one out of the book of Numbers. Numbers 33, 52. Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy. This is God commanding his people who had just been brought out of slavery. Drive them out before you destroy all their figured stones, destroy their metal images, and demolish their high places. Now, this next one's pretty interesting. This is 2 Kings 18.4. Here we have a Hebrew king, Hezekiah, and he does what you would expect. It says he removed the high places, these foreign pagan places of worship. He, he removed them. He broke the pillars, cut down their Asherah, that, um, uh, an idol. And then he, but look what else he does. He broke into pieces the bronze serpent that who made? Moses, that's the Moses made for until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. This, this thing that, that this Hebrew king broke, this is a national treasure. This is something that Moses made. This is something that not just Moses made. God told Moses to make it and lift it up. What could possibly give you so much conviction that you destroy something of that historical significance? What are these high places? And how could something that God told his people to set up become something that God wants torn down? How can something good become bad? Well, before we answer those questions, i got a confession to make. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important to read the Bible and to read the whole thing and to study it. Because you can have these impressions that seem logical, but you're just wrong. I, I'm a 44-year-old seminary-trained uh, pastor, and I thought I knew what a high place was. You know, I, I saw a high place. I thought it's a... High place, you know? And so I had this picture in my head of all high places are, are up on a mountaintop somewhere, open air, you know, sites of, of, of worship. Well, that can be true, but, but it's more than that. It's more nuanced than that. So I'm glad I did some research before just writing the sermon, right? So, so I, I thought I knew what there was. Here, here, let me show you how we get the English high places. Because if you're not familiar with the history of the Bible, the Bible wasn't originally written in English. In fact, the Bible is a collection of all kinds of ancient documents, different people, different time periods. And they were written in different languages. And so it wasn't just something that was one book written in English. 
And, and you have these ancient texts, in fact, the most ancient of the texts, they're, they're written in Hebrew, and there's the transliteration into English of that Hebrew word. Well, one of our ancient texts also is a Latin text. This one um, comes from, it's called the Vulgate. It's, uh, it dates to the 4th century, so the year 300-something. Um, you've got the Latin, a Latin translation, and in Latin, they translated the Hebrew as this. A word that sounds like one we sing like in um, Christmas, Gloria and Excelsis. And so it appears as though a number of the English translators took their cues from Latin rather than necessarily from Hebrew, and they took this idea of high place. And the reason why I I say it kind of sounds like they assumed that is because not all the high places were high. When you go back and you look at the actual high places, just the ones we see in the, in the, illustrated in the, um, in the scripture, we see that they weren't all high. They weren't necessarily on a mountain. The term high place doesn't necessarily refer to elevation. Some high places were on hilltops. Many of them were, but some were in the city. And some were open-air sites. Others had large temple complexes with living quarters for priests and dedicated rooms to prefer, perform all kinds of various religious rites. And here's another thing. This is nuance. I just assumed all high places were bad. It's not that simple. In fact, here was one um, passage. This is out of 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 2. It talks about a high place. It says the people were sacrificing at the high places because there was no house that had been built for the name of Israel. And if you were to continue to read here, you would see this account of a king, a Jewish king named Solomon. And here he's at a high place and he's worshiping God. And apparently he's worshiping God in a way that that doesn't offend God because God speaks to him in a dream. And God speaks to Solomon and doesn't just speak to him in a dream and say, what are you doing worshiping here instead of there? He speaks to him in this dream and he gives Solomon wisdom that no other person had ever had. And some believe nobody has had since. So high places, not necessarily always bad. High places can sometimes have something that once was good. What are these high places? places. How do they become problematic? It certainly isn't location. God is everywhere. God is everywhere. The Bible says we can't hide from God even if we wanted to. Can you worship God on a mountaintop? Yes, absolutely. Can you worship God in a city? Yes. Can you worship God in a building dedicated for that purpose? Yes. Can you worship God in a community center? Yes. And you did and you can. Yes. So the problem with high places isn't that they're high. The problem that high place isn't that they're outdoor. Here's when high places become problematic, at least in ancient Israel. Here's what happened. The God of Noah, the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, he revealed himself and he said, I am the one true God. I'm not a God that that you made up. I'm not a God that your hands have crafted. I am different from all other gods. All other gods are either something you made or something you made up or something you ascribe to deity value to. The God of the Bible says, I'm the one true God. So he says this, he reveals him that. He reveals himself as the one true creator God. He reveals himself as one who knows all that can be known and can do all that can be done. He reveals himself as one whose ways are good and right and true. He reveals himself as one of great power and wisdom and love and justice and grace. And he says that he alone, he alone can save us from sin and death. So this is how he reveals himself. And the Old Testament high places became the icons of cautionary tales when they became sites where rival gods were allowed to compete for human devotion. I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to take out your yellow yellow sheets, and I'd encourage you to write this down. Here's the problem with high places. 
whether it was then or now. Or at least here's a truth behind high places. High places reveal our rival gods. And when there are rival gods at your high place, now you've got a problematic high place. Our high places reveal our rival gods. When a high place was reserved for God alone, when the worship of him alone happened at this high place, there doesn't seem to be a problem. The problem occurs when people allow something else to compete for their devotion. And it's pretty easy to look back in the day to look at what we would call now, with our arrogance, primitive cultures. It's pretty easy to look back and to say, well, you can see their gods. Because they're gods, they, they've made something. They, they took their obsessions and they personified them and they, they would turn them into objects. Perhaps they were just more honest than we are. Perhaps they were just more honest than we are and more self-aware. There's a, a great book that Dan, uh, Dan Nimlos recommended to me. I've actually put it on the back of your notes. It's called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. We're going to have a couple quotes from him today from that book. I encourage people to, to read it if you'd like. Um, here, here's one of the things he says. He goes, the old pagans, meaning people who are not followers of what we would consider the one true God, the old pagans, they were not fanciful when they depicted virtually everything as a God. They had sex gods. They had work gods. They had war gods. They had money gods. They had nation gods. And it wasn't fanciful for the simple fact that anything can be a God that rules and serves as a deity in the heart of a person or in the life of a people. I would present to you, we have as many gods as they did. It's just they were perhaps more honest than we are because they would say what I'm doing is worship of this God and we wouldn't say the same, even though what we're doing is worship of another God. The biblical concept, you know, I, the, the idea of ascribing primitive to people that we don't know is, is just, it's arrogant. The biblical concept of idolatry it is extremely sophisticated. It integrates intellectual, psychological, social, cultural, and spiritual categories. There are personal idols, such as romantic love, family, money, power, achievement, popularity, health, and physical beauty. They just personified it. Many look to these things, though. Those who don't make statues to it, they still look to these things in a godlike way, with, with a longing for hope or meaning that, and fulfillment that only God can provide. And just as there's personal idols, there's also cultural idols. Military power, technological progress, economic prosperity. The idols of many traditional societies may include family, hard work, moral future, moral virtue. And those in um, Western cultures, we might idolize things like personal freedom, self-discovery, personal affluence, and fulfillment. Can these things be good? Yes. Can they become an idol? Yes. Idols are everywhere. And in your notes, I have a couple questions. You know, the first, first two on here, they, they, they hopefully help try to get at that. What is an idol? Who or what competes for God with your first and best? What competes for God for devotion? I also have more questions. And what I'm going to do here in a minute is just give you some time to reflect on these. You know, I, being clairvoyant, I, um, I, I, I know what would happen if I said, well, just go do this over lunch. You know, five or six of you would. <laughs> my, my hope is that we, if we took some time right now that you'll do this. I encourage you to do this. Even if you're not a believer in what we're calling the one true God, just, just take a moment and, and, and answer these questions. Questions like this. Where do your thoughts effortlessly go when there's nothing else demanding your attention? What does your time and money most naturally flow towards? What is the source of your daily functional salvation? What do you fear? 
Where do you place your trust? And where are the greatest sources of your worry and stress? What are the root beliefs behind your most uncontrollable emotions? And where do you find your identity and self-worth? Just take a moment and think through those. I'd encourage you to write them out. We're not going to turn in your sheets or anything like that, but I encourage you to do that. So let's play the music while they spend some time doing this. Once again, because I am clairvoyant, I, um, I, I know what a lot of you were thinking while you did this. You were thinking, <laughs> it might have sounded a little different than that, but, but my mic'd up. You, if, 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 if you're normal, if you're normal, your defenses were coming up right now. And you had a hundred reasons. You had a hundred reasons why, well, I, I know God should be the answer for number one, but come on, let's be realistic. This is the real world. This is one we're in. And I know number two, it should flow towards God, but come on, come on. I care too much, and I'm serious about this. I care too much to let you off that easy. I think one of the problems in our Western society is just we see everything through a Western lens, and we just assume that things have to be the way they are. Or we're, we're afraid sometimes, or we're just not, um, maybe it doesn't always fear. Sometimes we're just too lazy to really do the hard work of pressing in and saying, is this... Why do I believe what I do? And is this right? Or do I, do I just assume that it's right? I want to show you something. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to this one. This is in the book of Exodus. Exodus uh, chapter 20, um, starting with verse 2. Um, I want to show you this. It's a familiar passage. In fact, many people who never read the Bible, they know this passage. Um, I also want to say, too, as we're opening our Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, we keep a stack in the back of the room every week. And whether it's this visit or a future visit, if you'd ever like to take one, it's a gift to you. You don't have to sign up or anything Sign anything. Just, just please take one. We'd love for you to do that. All right, here we go. This is Exodus 20, um, starting verse 2. It comes from a section called the Ten Commandments that we, many people are familiar with. And this is the first of all. It says, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you shall have no other gods before me. Now, there's many translators who would say that even though we use the English words, no other God before me, it would be more accurate to translate that as, you shall have no other gods in my presence. In fact, I should have wrote down the reference earlier. There was a guy that came, uh, Reed came up to me after the service, and he said, yeah, here, here's, a, here's a cross-reference. And he took another verse, I think it was also in Exodus, that says that, you know, in no uncertain terms. You shall have no other gods in my presence. 
God alone, if, if we are to be biblical people, then God alone shouldn't just occupy our, heart, our high place. Our understanding of who God is and what God wills, it should inform how we relate to everything else. Up here on the altar, we have a couple different objects symbolizing the things that we're going to look at over the next four weeks, just different, different things that become idols, like entertainment. Um, is entertainment always bad? No, not at all. Um, in media, is media always bad? No, sometimes it's very, very good. But it, it becomes an idol when it starts to either cloud our view of authentic faith or whether it competes for God's attention, or if we engage media in a way that the Bible says you should not be doing these things, then it becomes an idol. And, and it, it can be up here on the altar when we surrender and say, okay, God, you are the only God, and what you say about these other things, I'm going to do. That, that's the biblical framework. Now, before we move on from this first point that I had you write down, our high places reveal our rival gods, I want to bring up one more point piece under that, that that I think is important, and a piece that I've never reflected on quite this way. Uh, in your notes, I'd ask you to write down our high places reveal our rival guides. I, I had a couple questions that help us to get at idols, but here's another thing that happened on the high places. It wasn't just that the high places sometimes set up other idols. Sometimes the high place, the idol was God. It's just they were worshiping in a way that was different than the way God instructed them to worship. In fact, it was in a way that was not the way God instructed them to worship. Um, I think of the case with when there was civil war in the nation of Israel, and there was a point in the history of Israel where there was civil war, and they divided into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom that got the name Israel, and then there was a southern kingdom that got the name, anyone know? Judah. So there was a civil war. Well, the temple was where? It was in Judah. And so the people in the northern kingdom are like, well, we can't have the holy site be down there. There's all kinds of political reasons. There's all kinds of reasons why that would be destructive to our government. It would be bad for us and all this kind of stuff. So they start setting up their own high places. And they start setting up their own priesthood. And that was not okay with God. And, and I started translating that into our terms, and it brought me down to some really uncomfortable places. Because I think about Western worship, and I'm not, hear me clearly, I'm not saying any of these things are bad that I'm about to list. I'm just saying, for the most part, we don't even ask that question. I think about how comfortable in, in America we try to make our services. We try to make them so comfortable. And we spend a lot of time and a lot of money on that. And should we? Should, should our worship services be as comfortable as they are? I think about the Sabbath. I can't find a place in the scriptures, in New Testament or Old Testament, where the Sabbath was revoked. Don't work on the sixth day. That, that's part of worship. We work on the sixth day. Should we? I'm not saying, I'm not saying we should wrestle with that. The early church, they gathered on Sunday, the first day of the week. They called it the Lord's Day. American churches will we'll offer whenever it's convenient for people. Should we? Maybe. But are we asking that question? Internet church is growing in popularity. And here's one where I would, you just can't do biblical Christianity through pixels. You can't. You can do pieces of it, but you can't do what the Bible says we are to do online. Only portions of it. Am I, should, we not, should we not do it? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, are we even asking these questions? 
Are we even asking these questions? Few people confess their sins with one another. Few people serve the way Jesus said to serve or give the way the Bible says to give. Few people ever place themselves under real authority or set their minds on what is true and honorable and pure and commendable. And I'm not saying that Western forms of worship are wrong, but do we ever set up high places where we're worshiping not just in a way that is innovative, perhaps we're worshiping in a way we shouldn't worship. Have we allowed our, our, even our worship to be a high place? Okay, where am I heading with all this? Where, let me tell you where I'm not heading. I'm not heading towards guilt. That's not the point of, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm worshiping another idol, and so I should feel really bad. M- my point is to point us towards where worship really belongs and to point out the consequences if we don't allow God to fix our mind and our hearts on where they should be fixed. Dory, can we go back to slide eight? All those questions. This is one of the things I was writing down earlier. See, you guys, you benefit from there being a nine o'clock service. Um, let's go back to these questions. Here's something that struck me um, between services. You know, we go back to these questions, and sometimes it thinks, oh, we're, we're giving up so much for God, you know, or whatever. We think this is such a great sacrifice or, or whatever. But take, take a look at this. Imagine if... God would bring us to a place where, for number one, where do your thoughts effortlessly go when there's nothing else demanding your attention? What if it did go to God? Think of the benefits of that. This isn't a guilt thing. Or it doesn't go to God. I should feel bad. Imagine if your thoughts effortlessly, that word, if they went there. Imagine that because then God could speak to you in a moment. You, you, your, your mind just goes to God. God could direct you towards something that you wouldn't otherwise have been directed to. He could give you a word that you need in that moment. He could give you some comfort or peace if your mind effort just like it rolled off of Jill's tongue. Imagine, imagine getting to that place where when you're stressed, your mind instantly goes to God. And so you go to your source of help and, and, and deliverance, all right? Number two, think about this. What if your time and money naturally went towards God? Where does it come from in the first place? God. So what if instead of it going to places that aren't going to help with that, what if they went towards the, the one who is the giver and sustainer of all things? Number three, your source for salvation. What if instead of going, oh, I'm stressed because I don't have enough of this or I have too much of this and you're stressed. What if you naturally went to the one who is mighty to save? the one who can command lightning bolts. What if naturally that's where we went? And even in a stressful situation, let's say, you're, let's say you're in a situation where you're thrown in prison for your faith. What if your mind went there so it was like, okay, I can't lose right now because God, he could deliver me if he wanted to. And if he doesn't, if I honor him, this can be used for his glory. I can't lose. If they kill me, I can't lose. Imagine how life would be different. If God could bring us to that place. Number four, your root beliefs. You know, I think about some of my most uncontrollable emotions. Sometimes I just get so mad. You know, somebody cuts me off or all this kind of stuff. In in traffic, where does that come from? It comes from me thinking, if I really dig deep, it comes from me thinking that the world should revolve around me. What if we didn't have that assumption that the world should revolve around us? Imagine what freedom that would bring. And number five, where do you find your identity and self-worth? Imagine if your identity was the unchanging reality that you have a God that is crazy about you, that thought you were worth dying for. A God that, that created you. He knit you together. He has plans and purposes for you. Imagine if that's where your identity was, rather than in if I do well, if I have enough money, what other people think of me. That's stuff that you can't control and can so easily change. Do you see how practical this is? 
And you see why this isn't about, this is about God saying, this is the life I have for you. You can have this life if you put me here and then trust me in arranging all the rest. This isn't about guilt. It's about learning from the mistakes of others who didn't do this before we repeat the mistakes ourselves. Because look at what happened here, and I encourage you to write this down. Your high places can lead to your downfall. Your high places can lead to your downfall. We certainly see it in the Bible. We see verses like 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 40 says this. Even while these people, they were worshiping the Lord, what were they doing? You can say it all up. They were serving their idols. And, you know, we do this all the time. We just don't admit that we're doing it. We worship the Lord, but we serve these other idols. That, did that end well for people in the Old Testament? Didn't end well. Didn't end well for them. Here's, here's what happened. This is out of um, Psalms. They basically just spell out what happened. Psalm 78, verse 58 says this. They ended up provoking God to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their ang- idols. Later in the series, I want to look at the fine line between jealousy and zealousness. Between jealous and zealous. Why is God jealous? It doesn't come from a bad place. It comes from a great place. He's zealous for you. But it'll make him jealous. And you don't want that. If the Bible is true, we are not as wise as we think we are. If the Bible is true, we're not as wise as we think, are, as, as we think we are. I think about how the Bible reveals God to us. One of the ways God is revealed through the Bible is as a father. And I'm a dad to two kids. And my kids have said as much that they think life would be better if they could set the rules. You know? They think life would be better if they could set the rules. My kids think life would be better if they could eat whatever they wanted to eat. Would their life be better if they could eat whatever they wanted to eat? No. Yes. No. They think if they could set their own bedtime every night, they think their life would be better. It wouldn't. I'll just answer for you. Um, They think if we could not go to school whenever we don't want to go to school. They, They have all these ideas if we could treat each other the way we want to treat each other. They have all these ideas about how their life would be better if they could just do what they want to do. Let me just say something that sounds so un-American. You don't know what's best for you. I don't know what's best for me. That comes from a biblical paradigm. And and let's just say you don't believe that the, the Bible is the revealed word of God. Let's just pretend you don't believe that. Just work with me philosophically then. Philosophically, if it was true, can you understand why Christians would say if there is a God like this, a God who can speak and the world is created, if there's a God like that, if there's a God that, that knows history and can orchestrate history, if there's a God that can do miraculous supernatural things, if that God exists, is it possible that he would know more than us? Yes. Is it not just possible, is it logical then to, cons- to conclude that he would be farther above our thoughts than the thoughts of a father are above the most foolish of children? It's completely logical. And if we're going to be consistent with the scriptures then we need to say, okay, there's going to be times where I think I know how to order this or I think I'm okay freestyling. Are we going to trust that God knows better, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and and his ways are higher than our ways and we should go with what he reveals to us? That seems logical. And we see what happens when people don't do that. In the case of the nation of Israel, in the case of the nation of Israel, this is history right now. 
In the case of the nation of Israel, they refused to tear down those high places. You can, you can go to archaeological digs where, where, where they can identify some of these high places. They refused to tear them down. And now here's what the scripture says about that. The scripture says, well, then, when, as they did, after warning, after warning, after warning, then God stopped listening to their prayers. God didn't accept their sacrifices. And he told them in no uncertain terms, okay, you're going to look to those gods to save you. Good luck with that. And those gods couldn't save them. And then another of the, the, some of the language that God uses, he, he says, okay, you want to commit adultery with these other things? I'm not going to be a part of a love triangle like that. You go ahead. You run off with them. And let's see how that works for you. Let's see how, 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 how that love relationship pans out. There's, here's another great quote. I told him, Dan, about the book, Counterfeit Gods. It's great. Here's another quote from it. Tim Keller writes, he, he, he references two Jewish philosophers who knew the scriptures intimately, and they concluded that the central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. And then in his own words, Tim Keller continues, the Bible is therefore filled with story after story depicting the innumerable forms and devastating effects of idol worship. Every counterfeit God that a heart can choose, whether it's love, money, success, power, it has a powerful biblical narrative that explains how that particular kind of idolatry works itself out in our lives. And over the next four weeks, we're going to look at some of these specific examples from the Bible. People who decided, I'm going to go my way, I'm going to serve one of these other gods rather than trusting God, and, and how that worked out, as well as examples that, that, that we've seen in our world right around us of how people have done that and how it's worked out for them. And here's the conclusion that I believe you'll, you'll come to as, as I have. Um, here, Tim Keller says it very well. He says, these people, after giving lots of examples of these people who just torpedoed their life through this, he goes, they've sacrificed everything to their gods, but it wasn't enough. In ancient times, the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. And what does it say next? They still are. They still are. These things that, that seem to promise such life, they are so hard to appease and they're so fickle. They're so fleeting. And not only are they like that, you have a God that loves you well enough, like any good parent, to say, you know what? I'm going to let you experience natural consequences here. You don't have to turn to me. You know, but wow. I'll say it again. If the God... God is who the Bible describes him to be, then the gap between the wisest among us and him is infinitely wider than the gap between the wisest parent and the most foolish child. And getting your heart's desire might just be the worst thing that could happen to you. That is, if you don't ask God to give you a new heart, one that longs for the life that God created you to live, one that looks to the creator for guidance and strength and salvation. You know, circling back to the analogy I used earlier of a doctor you know, our, our issue is a hard issue. Do you have what the Bible describes as an old heart, one that, that longs for the things of this world and, and idolizes them? Or are you going to allow God to give you a new heart that longs for him and that puts trust in him? Last, uh, last thing I'd encourage you to write down is this. We're almost done. High places, you, you need to know this if you don't already. High places, you can't just remove them. What do you have to do? You've got to replace them. You can't just remove a high place. You, you need to replace it because we are, we're, we're hardwired for worship. A lot of times we don't call it worship, but we're hardwired for worship. 
We are hardwired. Um, our hearts are hardwired as idle factories. There are so many good things in this world, and we're going to be elevating them. We're going to pursue them. We're going to go after them. We're going to, we, we need hope to survive. We're going to place our hope in them that perhaps this thing can bring me joy. This can bring me fulfillment. We're going to put our dreams in something. And the better the thing is, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest hopes and our deepest longings. Nothing here, just God can do that. And so what we're doing is we're asking these things to do things that they can't do but that they promise to do. Only God can give you what only God can give you and help you set these things in the right place. This is why I believe what we're talking about uh, the next four weeks is, is a top button deal. You know, you ever button your shirt and you get, you get it off? You, you, you know, when, when, when does that usually happen? It happens when you start where? In the middle. And, and if you start with one of these things, let's say entertainment, and you're like, okay, I'm, this is the thing that's central in my life, and you start there, everything else is going to be out of place. And, and if you start with any of those things, God is a top-button deal. You, you get that one right, and he teaches us how the rest works. He, he can do that because he's the creator. Last quote, and this is, comes from a guy named Francis Chan. This is really well said. He says, I'm not against scholarship, and we certainly aren't in this church. I'm not against scholarship, but I do believe there are times when we come to a more accurate conclusion through a simple reading of the Bible. I've spent the last few days reading the Gospels. Rather than examining one verse and then dissecting it, I attempted to read my Bible from the perspective of a 12-year-old who knew nothing about Jesus. My conclusion? Jesus' call to commitment is clear. He wants what? Read it with me. All or nothing. The thought of a person calling themselves a Christian without being a devoted follower of Christ, it's absurd. Don't take my word for it. Read it yourself. And I would encourage you to do the same. Even if you have been raised in the church from, from start to finish, if you're like, no, 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 I've always been told Christianity, you know, you, you say this, this prayer and you're good. I, I wouldn't put my hope in a prayer. I'd put my hope in full devotion to the God who answers prayers. Earlier today, um, we sang these, those powerful songs, and I mentioned that earlier. And we sang lyrics like this. At the cross, I bow my knee, or bend my knee, or something with your knees. Bend, bow, bend probably? Bow, bow? All right. At the cross, I bow my knee, where your blood was shed for me. Does anyone remember what we sang next? There's no greater love than this. You have overcome the grave. Your glory fills the higher, highest place. There's what? No greater love than this. We've sang it. Do you believe it? Will you order your life around that? And can anything else on here promise that? Did any of these things die for you? These other things. Did any of these things promise to have ultimate fulfillment? You know, that's what God's promising. So as we close today, let's pray. Let's, would you do that? Let me pray for you as we go forth from today. Let's, please stand. Let me pray for us all. And Lord, we want to start with those who are, are, are professing followers of you. Lord, I pray, we pray that your spirit would give us courage and, and courage to, to ask honest questions. Lord, I pray as we go through this week and, and, and we have opportunities to consume media. Lord, I pray that you'll help us, to, that your spirit will speak and say, are, are you submitting? to me in this. Is this something you should be watching or should you be watching this much? Lord, I, I think about, you know, career and relationships and all these things. Lord, would you guide us? 
you know, be like those new Google glasses for us. You know, will you, will you help us to see spiritual realities all around us and speak to us? Help us to see idols that we never identified like that before. And then, God, would you give us the strength and conviction and heart to trust you that what you say is really true? And there is no greater love than this. And there is no one else that can deliver. And, Lord, we certainly pray for those who are, are just joining us and, and they're not at that place. And we thank you, Lord, that, they, that they're willing to come and listen. And, Lord, we pray that this would be helpful that you would speak to them and that you would help them to honestly wrestle with, um, with these things that, that we present to them. But Lord, more than that, we pray that you'll do for them what you've done for so many of us, and that is to just reveal yourself to them. Beyond any convincing words, beyond any piece of evidence, would you, would you do that? Would you confirm what most of them already know to be true, that there, there, there's something at work here that you can't, just test tube and you, you can't just do on a mathematical formula but there are there are forces at work bigger than that lord would you reveal yourself as as the one true god to them throughout this this time together so lord it's that blessing that we ask for as we go forth from this place in jesus name amen god bless you have a great week